Welcome to the ADS Podcast. This is where we talk about all things audience development for the arts related. Join us for discussions about audience building tips, ideas, concepts, and philosophies with sometimes brought in special guests. And now, here's your latest podcast for you. Hello, this is Shoshana from Audience Development Specialist, and welcome to our next ADS podcast. So today we are going to talk with Scott Harrison from the Detroit Symphony Orchestra. I have been following their webcast for a little while now, and I thought it would be great to get some background details about their webcast, how they do it, is it helping them build audiences? We are going to find out today. Before I introduce Scott, I wanted to tell you a little bit about him. Scott Harrison is a veteran of major symphony orchestras nationwide and has worked for the Detroit Symphony Orchestra since 2010, currently serving in two roles, Executive Director of Board Engagement and Strategy and Executive Producer of Digital Media. His responsibilities include working with board leadership to lead the activities of the Board of Directors and Board of Trustees in pursuit of the DSO's strategic objectives and revenue goal, overseeing the Office of Communications and Media Relations as it builds the DSO's local, national, and global reputation, and shepherding the DSO's electronic media work, including the groundbreaking Live from Orchestra Hall webcast series, as the organization becomes the most accessible orchestra on the planet. That sounds exciting. We would love to have orchestras become the most accessible on the planet. And here's how our conversation unfolded. So, without further ado, I want to invite Scott Harrison of the Detroit Symphony Orchestra to our ADS podcast. Welcome, Scott. Well, thank you, Shoshana. I'm happy to be here. 80, I like round numbers. I feel special. <laughs> That's wonderful. And how are you today? I'm doing great. It's summer. We're, we're having a fantastic summer season here at the Detroit Symphony. We just... Um, Played for a record-breaking uh, crowd for our July 4th concert this last weekend. Um, it's really great for us to be able to get out to the community. Uh, it's really it's a big part of who we are, whether it's digital, whether it's local, whether it's regional. I mean, we really like to welcome in all sorts of people to enjoy our music. So the DSO is having a great summer. I'm having a great summer. We're just all having fun. Great, great. And I did uh, already tell our audience about what you do at the DSO. How long have you been there again? I've been at the DSO about four years. So have you always had the same job at the DSO? No, my roles actually changed quite a bit, um, which I've enjoyed. I've um, The digital's always been a part of it, though, of course, that's grown and evolved as the scope of our digital impact uh, has really deepened. But um, I've done a few other things that related to customer service, um, building subscription audiences, uh, working with our patron engagement and loyalty programs efforts. Um, I was overseeing gift processing for a while. Uh, so I've done I've done all sorts of things at the DSO. I like to just make myself available wherever I can be helpful. And as we've sort of um, gone through some changes over the past few years, I've, I've just made myself readily available to the institution wherever I can be of help. Oh, that's a great way to be part of a nonprofit organization. And, well, let's get into this. I'm, I'm really excited how that will lead into the DSO webcasts because that's obviously a really big different hat that you're wearing there. 
So tell us all about the DSO webcast, the background, when it was founded, how many webcasts you have done so far, et cetera, et cetera. Well, definitely. I, I can't say we've done 80, um, but we've done 73, I believe. Wow, almost. So we're close. We're catching up to uh, to your podcast. <laughs> but no, it's, um, it, it's really amazing to look back at it and to imagine that we've produced live 73 webcasts featuring some of the greatest artists of the world and all um, featuring the Detroit Symphony Orchestra. Actually, not all of them. We've done a couple with some partners like the Sphinx Symphony Orchestra, but probably about 69 or 70 of them featuring the Detroit Symphony Orchestra. In fact, I was just at the, the, the League of American Orchestras conference, and I was meeting with some artist managers to talk to them about how much we appreciated their guest artists and their guest conductors participating so willingly and so enthusiastically in the webcast. And we put together this little sheet of every artist uh, who had joined the webcast at some point in the past three years. And it was just fantastic. It was amazing to see just the who's who of just tremendous uh, performers and virtuosos in every instrument, um, ranging from, of course, violin and piano to, to saxophone and trumpet and oud, which is uh, an Ood. Arab uh, okay. instrument. <laughs> so we've had um, just about everything on the program. But as I mentioned, it's been three years. We started in April 2011. And... We started at an interesting time for the DSO. It's no secret that the DSO in 2010-2011 went through some very dark times. Um, we had a, uh, a strike um, that lasted six months. And uh, when we came out of that strike in April 2011, we were determined to never again allow the circumstances of the institution um, to get to a point where anything like a labor stoppage or um, uh a budget issue would ever sort of get in the way of, of what we do, which is impacting the community with great music and sharing our art with audiences. And so we knew that we'd have to change and get a lot more flexible and uh, a lot more aggressive in how we made ourselves available to folks. And so one of the first things that, that we did is um, that first concert back in April 2011, we webcast it. And we didn't know much about webcasting at that time, but we just had an idea that this was a way to reach more audiences, to show our accessibility, and to and to let people know in a really sort of big and proud way that the DSO is still a great orchestra and will always be a great orchestra, and that we are proud of who we are, and we're gonna and we want the world to know. And so we did that first webcast. We actually ended up doing five that spring in that little truncated season. Oh, great. And then we came back the next year and started our full-fledged season. It was actually really interesting. There was a little bit of chutzpah involved because um, we didn't have the funding for the full season lined up. When we started, um, I think it was at 11-12 season, we had the funding for the fall. But we just said, you know what? If we do this successfully, if we stick to our guns, if we show that this is a product that people can be proud of, we're going to be able to secure the funding for the spring. So we announced a full season of Live from Yorkshire Hall webcasts. Um, and sure enough, we did tremendous work, and the, the funders and the supporters were really thrilled with the uh, what we were delivering, and they said, okay, let's keep this going for the spring. And so we've done now the three full seasons, uh, 73 webcasts in total, as I mentioned, right. with the very generous support of the Knight Foundation, uh, the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation out of Miami, and the Ford Motor Company Fund right here in Detroit, of course, the big three being major supporters of so much of the arts community here in Detroit. But, um, you know, it's, it's been a three year project and every year we've, we've improved and invested in the project in a different way. This, um, this past season was when we installed our robotic camera system. So we moved from a system where we were renting cameras, mm -hmm. uh, each week 
uh, to a system where we now own and operate a robotic camera production system. So our, our ability to produce higher quality webcasts and our ability to produce more webcasts because now we own the equipment and our ability to make the equipment available to community partners and other arts organizations and to really make not just the orchestra digital but the venue digital is just one of the most exciting recent developments in the course of the Live from Orchestra Hall webcast series. So each year we grow, we improve, um, and we just we keep looking forward to what the future has to offer for the series. Oh, that's fabulous. So it sounds like you have built momentum and it's gaining speed. And I wanted to ask you, why webcasts? Because there's definitely different things you could have taken an experimental approach to. Were there predecessors in our industry or in other industries that kind of got your attention to say, let's do the webcast? Well, I think it's actually always been part of the DSO DNA to be on the forefront of media and recorded technology. We were the first orchestra to be broadcast live on the radio. Oh, I didn't Um, know that. That's great. uh, Um. Hundreds of thousands, probably millions of individuals remember in the 40s and 50s listening to the Detroit Symphony on nationwide radio broadcasts. We have a rich recording legacy from Paul Perret to Naomi Yarvey to our current music director, Leonard Slacken. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a history of television specials with PBS, some really exciting ones. There's a really cool one we did about 20 years ago with a arrangement of Beethoven's Ninth by Mahler. So... This sort of idea, and, and, and I should mention our just our, our connection to Motown and being part of all those great studio recordings. Right. The, the, the commitment to technology and reaching audiences using media has always been part of the DSO. So the idea that we might engage in this new terrain um, in the webcasting sphere felt very natural. I mean, of course, it was new and it's different. And, of course, there are question marks and people you know, want to understand how is this going to work and, and, and how is this going to be successful and, and what does this mean for – um, the audiences we reach and the type of institution we are and how we perceive, but the willingness to engage is embedded in the fabric of our culture here at the institution. So it felt very natural to um, to engage in webcasting. So um, uh, for us, it was it was I guess an easy decision to make to say let's throw our let's throw our hat into this ring. And I should also add, by the way, that that the sort of approach to accessibility, mm-hmm. and we like to call ourselves, in all seriousness, the most accessible orchestra on the planet. It's a goal of ours that we're working to achieve every day. But that commitment to accessibility is not just about digital. It's also about the live part of the institution. So there's all this community work that we now engage in, going to hospitals, going to senior centers, engaging with school districts and, and classrooms throughout um, the metro area, uh, making ourselves available so people can get up close with our musicians in ways that maybe weren't possible in the past. That's all part of the accessible face of the DSO, and it all just complements and extends and enhances the core of what we do, which is cre- which is produce and present amazing performances of the great classical repertoire we get and we got at Orchestra Hall. So I think whether it's the media background, whether it's the willingness to engage, I mean, it's all – it doesn't feel like an outsider – the webcast, which I think some people might think, well, that seems like a distraction or that seems like an extra project. No, it's core to who we are and how we promote and project ourselves, and it's core to how we share our music. So it feels, again, it just feels very natural that we engage in this product here. And that's great that you're saying that you're doing other things in conjunction with this because you you don't want to appear a one-trick pony. You, you definitely want to make yourself accessible in different ways. So I'm glad you did clue us in on the other 
community projects that you're doing out there in Detroit. So I'm very curious about the format of the program. Can you just walk mm -hmm. us through what is it like to put on this type of program? What is the whole format of it? We've actually put a lot of thought into format because for us it's a key element of how we're accessible. And also to us it's important that we're taking advantage of the unique properties the video and the web medium offers that, that make it special or different from the live experience. So each webcast begins with a pre-concert show. We've got a fearsome duo, Alex Trajano and Charles Greenwell, who lead each webcast. Um, Alex is sort of the man of the street, and Charles is the font of knowledge. He has more classical music knowledge jammed into his head than most of us have forgotten. <laughs> um, That's a great so, mixture to have. Yeah. Yes. And so the two of them get the show started. They, they, they look inside the repertoire. They talk about what's happening at the DSO. And then we'll usually have a guest. Perhaps the guest conductor or, uh, will come on board and talk a little about the program up. But that, that pre-show lasts about 15 minutes. After that, we, of course, head into the first part of the concert. Between pieces, there are multiple pieces. We come back with a voiceover. We get a little context and, and input from Alex and Charles between perhaps the overture and the concerto to keep people engaged, to keep people involved. Um, it's important to us that there's never dead time. This is a, this is a, you know, televised production. It's not on television. It's on the web, but it's a televised production in the sense that it's a, a show that needs to go through and through. Um, and then when we get to intermission. We'll go back to Alex and Charles. We'll probably run some video about some things happening at the DSO. Oftentimes we invite a community partner on. It might be a business leader who's, a, who's made an impact in the arts in Detroit. It might be another artistic partner who has a, an interesting story to share. For example, we'll have guests on from the Detroit Institute of Art to talk about some of the exhibits going on there. We like to really showcase and highlight our partners in Detroit. Oh, great. So some collaboration happening. Exactly. And then we'll, we'll end with a little preview of what's happening on the, um, uh, the second half of the program. And then after the program, what we do is this is a newer feature, and it's just uh, received so much positive um reaction is if it's a Leonard week, if our music director Leonard Slacken's conducting, he'll lead a post and he'll lead it on stage and he'll interview some of the musicians, some of the artists uh, involved in the production. And Leonard is just uh, has such a uh, Leonard is just he could have been a, t uh, a TV host if he wanted. He just has such, <laughs> he has, he's so he's such a skilled and adept interviewer and to get his perspective talking and asking questions of the folks who just appeared on stage is just and he has such a relationship with them in many years. He's known some of these folks for 10, 20, 30 years. Right. I mean, so it's just fascinating to get to share a few minutes, to, to peek in on a few minutes of a conversation between Leonard and Yo-Yo Ma, like we had a few weeks ago, uh, a few months ago. So that's what's happening in terms of the watching experience. And the other key part of the format, which is critical to us, is the social. And I was just going to ask you about that. So what are you doing there with Twitter, especially? Well, we, we, we have two staff members, a, a terrific digital team, Eric Woodhams and Corinne Wiseman, who are logged in and on board and tuned in for the entire webcast, for every webcast we produce. They're on Twitter. They're on Facebook. They're on the live stream social client. They're using Instagram. They're texting. I'm sorry. They're, they're not texting, I guess, but they're, they're um, promoting or sending out live program notes on the player page on the DSO website. As you're watching the webcast, so if you have the window at half size, you'll see live program notes under the screen. So they're doing all sorts of things to engage with folks, to send out information, to answer questions, to really uh, encourage the community of watchers who have developed around the webcast. You know, it's interesting. I, I, I was looking at some stats, and based on some surveying we did, 
Um, about three quarters uh, uh, of our audience, actually a little bit more, about 80% of our audience uh, are repeat webcast viewers. We have a very engaged and sort of loyal following, and a number of them oh, are engaged socially too. And so we have our characters, our regulars. We've got our norms. <laughs> for, for those of us who remember Cheers, we've got our norms. You know, the folks who are there, <laughs> yeah, the folks who are there every week, and some of them, uh, they're just terrific. I mean, some of them like to live tweet the program and and do their own sort of commentary. We see them talking with each other. We see them sharing clips. So this sort of aspect of community um, for us is really exciting. And in fact, we're going to look to expand on it next year. I don't want to, I mean, I don't want to give anything away prematurely, but we're looking to start a, a sort of a webcast watch party club to right. encourage people in different communities, whether they're digital or live communities, to sort of form clubs and, and, and social groups around watching and to sort of incentivize and reward and promote and, and, and encourage the folks who do that to give them fun tools and inside institutions. So it's, um, uh, uh, it's something that we're looking to launch in, a, um, in, in this next year. And it's, it's something we've seen in a very variety of mediums. Um, and we've seen other arts groups in different ways do, do variations on this. So we're excited to, to do it as well because that aspect of community and social, we think that's, that's actually what makes the web different than a TV or a DVD product is it's, and that's what, why we, why we find the live so important and why we've put so much emphasis from a promotion and a production standpoint into the live because that's what I, I think really makes it cool. People are drawn to the fact that they know that they're part of a rich and robust community that's that could be around the corner or could be around the globe that's joining them in this sort of this musical experience. Right, right. So I'm getting the feeling that you're using a lot of different technology here and I'm leading into my next question for you. There's, it's so much of a robust program that's happening and, and many different people are, are behind the scenes here. What are the technology concerns? Um, I'm interested in finding out more about the costs of this type of programming, the nuts and bolts of the technology that you're using, and who is, who is behind the scene helping you to carry this out? Yeah, you know, the technology concern, of course, is, is the greatest technology concern is the one we have the least control over, and that's the end user. I mean, we're at the whim of everyone's individual Internet service provider and everyone's individual computer and laptop. And um, so we can put out a multi-million dollar production. And it's not that we spend multi-million dollars. We don't. But I'm saying we could spend millions and millions and millions of dollars. And in the end, you're still reliable on someone's laptop <laughs> or cell phone. That is so true. And, and if that's not a good connection or they don't have the latest drivers updated or whatever it might be, um, you know, that's, that's ultimately what controls the experience. But, but actually – We've um, we've got a, an amazing team uh, that works to produce each webcast, both from an artistic and a creative standpoint, and from a video standpoint, and from a technical standpoint. And so, from an artistic and creative standpoint, we have an artistic director of the webcast. He's a conductor named Oriel Sands, and he's just a terrific guy, and, and just uh, has a brilliant mind, and really, of course, not only understands music but understands how people perceive and view music. And so it's his vision that's by and large guiding your webcast experience because he takes, oh, that's interesting. He takes a week before each concert and he marks out shots and he thinks about when do I want to see the oboe and when do I want to see the violin. And of course, sometimes it's easy. If there's a big clarinet solo, you put on the clarinet. Sometimes it's not as easy during a 2D passage or during a duet or a trio. Where do you focus the camera? How long do you stay right. in a certain shot before you change? So a lot of it starts with Oriole's vision and now he sort of maps out uh, the show. 
he. So I can see why having a conductor would be really helpful in yes. this process, knowing the score and everything. Yes. And or interesting. And he, of course, he communicates with the with the conductor of the. Uh, he can he communicates with the conductor of the program that week. He communicates with the guest artist. And then he starts to work with the video director. We have a video director who's obviously an expert in television production who calls the cameras and calls the shots. And so they work together to sort of take Oriole's vision and, 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 and say, okay, now what are some of the realities of the technical constraints or what are some of the possibilities, some shots we can get that maybe we didn't think originally we could. And so the video element starts to get overlaid, right? And then there's a team in total – I've done. I've counted up. If if you exclude Eric and Corinne who are doing the digital uh, social component, though of course they're critical to every webcast. The number of people uh, on the production is, I believe, thirteen. There are thirteen, wow. and that doesn't include me or again or Eric or Corinne or any of the DSO staff. But the um, production staff is thirteen for each webcast, and so you have your your artistic director and your video director. Um, you've got uh, a camera operator. Now that we have the robotic camera system, you have one individual who by joystick controls um, all the cameras and pre-programmed shots. We come in during the week during orchestra rehearsal. We also have webcast rehearsal, and we pre-program shots. So when we need violin two or we need principal horn, it's a program cue that we can run to, and we can sort of go through all these shots in quick succession to give you the sort of the, the professional flow and the efficient flow that a, that a viewer expects. So you have your camera operator. You have your switcher, the person who's actually pulling up the different cameras live when they're ready to go live. Um, you have your audio engineer, who's, of course, making sure that all, all the audio levels are set, not only for the concert, but also for the pre-concert and intermission content with our hosts and our guests. Um, you have... Uh, um, uh, your producer, we have a television producer. We work in collaboration with Detroit Public Television. They provide services to make sure that, that we're producing at the highest level, and that producer is working on what's the sort of flow of the entire production, when are different elements dropped in, whether they're graphics, whether they're video, you know, is everything working? Uh, that producer, he or she is the final sort of voice in the room um, mm-hmm. to make sure that the whole production runs smoothly. We have a graphics engineer who's laying in all the graphics as they get called, um, you know, Leonard Slack and music director, Brahms Symphony Number One, Movement Number One. Um, we have an engineer getting more to the technical side. We have an engineer who is monitoring the live stream, who's making sure that there's no interruptions in the internet service, who's making sure that um, uh, if there's any troubleshooting with any equipment, that that occurs. Uh, and then we of course also have the team that's running the show, the intermission and, and uh, pre-concert show. We have a cameraman up there. We have a makeup artist. We have a floor manager. So I think when you when you add it all up, I, I believe it's about what I said, 12 or 13 people. I'm sure I'm forgetting someone people. because there's a lot of individuals uh, involved in the production. But it's really it's a marriage, like I said, of the artistic, um, the technical and the video. And all those expertises are required to have a really smooth and high level production. So what type of technology are you using then and how much are how much are the costs for? For this program, yeah, well, uh, okay. So on the streaming end, we use the live stream service. And, okay, live stream. Yeah, okay. And I know folks might be familiar with either live stream or UStream or Brightcove. There's a variety of solutions that what they do is they take a video production and they jam it into the internet pipe so that people can call it up on a website. In our co- in our case, we've been really happy with our partnership and relationship with live stream. We use uh, we work with one of their plans um, to. Uh, uh, 
to use the service. They offer a number of plans that I think range in price from, I believe the lowest ones are $99 a month up to the enterprise is about 10000 annually. And we work with that enterprise plan because of the, the level and the quality that, and the, so the professional quality of what we're producing, we find that enterprise plan is really critical. Um, uh, and then besides that, most of the cost is actually in personnel. Like I mentioned, we invested in um, a robotic camera production system. So we now own most of the equipment that we need. And so most of what we're spending money on is those 12, 13 individuals to come in each week. They're all contractors, but we have relationships with a number of them. So we're getting um, reliable crews who are learning the equipment, who are learning our system, who we love working with because they're devoted and dedicated to the project and make it better. Um, so most of our cost is in the um, is in the crew. And the truth is I've actually been it, – it, it's a little bit of a transition here because, like I mentioned, last year we put in um, – uh, we put in the new robotic camera system. Before we had that system in, we were spending um, uh, excess uh, in excess of $10,000 a webcast to mm -hmm. produce each one. Um, there was some variation, but you could probably peg it at an average of maybe eleven, twelve thousand. 12000 Now it looks like as we're sort of formalizing and now, and now really sort of um, standardizing our cost structure with the new equipment installed, it looks like we're able to about have that. So our oh, cost that's for good. webcasts okay. are more in the five to 7000 range. So um, in terms of uh, the investment, we, we think it's just an incredibly worthwhile investment in, in this medium because um, certainly like every other nonprofit, we have to be incredibly mindful of costs and, and we take every dollar we spend very seriously. There are no small amounts, but we think that the amount is very reasonable in, in, the, in, the, in terms of the impact it produces in terms of making ourselves available to all these listeners worldwide in terms of viewers, I should say, worldwide, in terms of adding extra value for our subscribers who come in and enjoy the product, um, in terms of uh, making an impression on the funding uh, community who's just really responded to the new face and approach of the DSO and says, that's an institution we want to support and get behind because right. finding new ways to support people. So, you know, we, we, we're really proud of the investment we've made and how much we're able to accomplish for what's a very modest and reasonable investment. So the investment has definitely, you're seeing a lot of ROI <laughs> in terms of the investment. People are actually coming forward wanting to help with funding because it is such a, a unique product that you are giving to your audiences. Exactly. I just want to mention one other thing with ROI. Um, and this didn't dawn on me until, I guess it dawned on me, but I didn't put it together until about four or five months ago um, when, when someone else was asking me these questions. And one of the biggest one of the biggest um, R's we've seen on our eyes <laughs> is, actually, is actually in the public relations sphere. Um, the webcasts have been so critical in helping us to tell our story and project nationally and internationally. Um, a lot of folks saw the New York Times article that ran in March about the DSO, which was specifically about the webcast series and the move to the robotic cameras. Uh, but in so many ways, our webcast work is a window to the larger world that attracts national and international press attention, whether it's from traditional media, whether it's from online media, whether it's even things like when Leonard Slacken, for example, went on Charlie Rose about a year and a half ago, he was able to bring a clip with him. Right, you know, and right. That's not, not many, right. <laughs> not many orchestras have that. <laughs> I don't know, most conductors can't show off and say, hey, let me not just tell you what I do. Let me show you what I do. Okay. I mean, it's it's just like when a movie star goes on The Tonight Show and has a clip, we have all this footage and all this 
rich history and this rich visual calling card of who we are. So um, that's been one of the biggest R's for us, really. But one of the biggest returns has been the the publicity and the and the and the building the brand and the awareness factor. That's been right, huge right. for us. So let us go into who are the audiences that are participating. So who's actually watching these webcasts? Yeah, that's a great question. And, you know, one of the things I was looking up before we had our little chat is uh, the number of subscribers. We did some surveying uh, of um, subscribers who uh, uh, and their sort of habits related to the webcast. And um, I do have to say I'll put a caveat on this number because, of course, um, well, not of course, but we did the survey via electronic mm -hmm. means. So there might very well be some subscribers who um, do not the the sample might not be fully representative, but based on the amount of online engagement we have from our subscriber base, um, we think it's largely representative. But we find that about 40% of our subscribers have watched um, have watched a live from virtual webcast. And what's cool about that is here's the other number that I that really blows my socks off. Since 2011, when we started the webcasting program. Our subscription base has grown 27%. Wow. Wow. So, so it's almost like a benefit for them to see the concert again, at, right? Exactly. So in addition to their subscription. And we hear it anecdotally from subscribers how they love the added dimension right. the webcasts add to their DSO experience. So in an era of, 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 of really robust subscription growth, a large number of subscribers are also making the webcast part of their subscription package, so to speak. They're extending the value of their DSO relationship. So then when you look a little more globally, we've we've seen the we, we sort of break the audience into um, I think it's four components. We find that about twenty two, twenty three percent of the audience lives within driving distance of No kidding. <laughs> Are they, <laughs> yep. I was going to say, are they lazy, but maybe they just huh. enjoy being at home. Uh, and I'll answer the question in regards to the local audience. Well, we've also found that in addition to that subscription growth, single ticket buying has grown 16% okay. since 2011. So again, I think that people are adding it to their experience, or in some ways I think it might be an introduction, or again, as I mentioned, a calling card to introduce people to the DSO and what we're about. And, and we've actually, we do talk a lot about the series locally. We don't hide it. And obviously that's one of the questions people always have in the beginning is, well, you've got this new medium, this new way of attracting people. Isn't it going to impact hall sales? And I think what we've seen over the years is that media is complementary to the hall experience. It enriches the association with an orchestra or classical music for those who engage live or sometimes becomes an introduction. But I think there are very few people who say, I'm satisfied with solely having a technological connection to the orchestra. They see it as part of a rich ecosystem of having another way to interact with the orchestra. So let me stack up those audience numbers again, about 22% um, within driving distance. Then about 40% of the audience is within the state of Michigan. So that's inclusive of the 22%, but the next circle on the Russian doll is 40% of the audience is within the state of Michigan, which for us is important because we do strive to have an impact regionally and within our state. Um, then beyond that, 70% of the audience is American, uh, is watching from the U.S., and then that final 30% is coming internationally. And we see a lot of viewership uh, in a few places. One is in Europe, uh, and particularly in countries like France and Italy and Spain are large watchers right. of the program. 
And then the other thing is we see a decent uh, amount of viewership from South America, probably because the time zones align. And so Argentina and Mexico and Brazil uh, in particular have a decent number of viewers tuning into the webcast. So for us, it's sort of given us some ideas about where we might in the future direct some of our um, online advertising to help to grow those audiences because, you know, it looks like there's some uh, eager communities uh, of, of DSO fans in, in some of those foreign countries. That's fantastic. And that also that also is significant because when we talk about wanting to get a more diverse audience, I mean, you can't get any more diverse than what you just mentioned. <laughs> so that that is amazing and something that can definitely be used for writing grants or connecting with different communities. That's fabulous. Exactly. Um, and then the other interesting thing is we've worked with a number of distribution partners, and my percentages do not include their uh, audience breakdown. So, for example, can you can you uh, kind of go into the details of distribution partners yep. so people can understand? So, for example, uh, we've had a relationship with a group in Russia called Paraclassics. They're a streaming site for classical music that a lot of people watch in Russia and Eastern Europe, and um, uh, they provide us with numbers, but we don't have a geographical breakdown of theirs to match our geographical breakdown. But but based on their sort of um, uh, impact and, and, and their exposure, they're likely adding significant number of Russian and Eastern European viewers. Um, we uh, sometimes work with Medici TV, which is based out of Paris, which a lot of people are familiar right. with. is a very popular streaming site. They actually have a large U.S. audience, but they also pull us a number of European viewers. And obviously, they, they, their U.S. pull is not nearly as Michigan-centric as our U.S. pull. So there's some additional diversity and sort of um, uh, scope of viewership coming from uh, from uh, Medici, and then one of the other partners. There's been a number of them, but one of the other ones we've worked with most recently, and and we're hoping to work with more in the future is PBS Digital Studios. So I mentioned right. that locally, we we produce the webcast in collaboration with Detroit Public Television, which is a PBS affiliate. Well, we've also through our relationship with DBTV been able to start a relationship with PBS Digital Studios at the national level, and so we've had some of our programs, our webcasts available for viewership on uh, PBS.org and on the PBS app or mobile, or Apple TV, or Roku. So there have been some other uh, audiences that have joined our viewing there also that have sort of created more diversity in terms of, of who's watching and where they're coming from. That's pretty amazing. And when you when you mean by distribution, these are the recorded webcasts? It's not like streaming live? It actually depends. Uh, in some cases, they've joined us for the live, and in some cases, it's been an encore strategy where uh, oh, no, an encore webcast. So we, we've worked different ways with different partners. Um, sort of, I think one of the one of the next real opportunities for us is to really, after we've done a little bit of this experimentation, is to really figure out what's going to be our long term encore strategy. Um, we feel very confident in how we produce the live. We feel very confident in drawing the audience to the live product and always keeping the live product free. I don't think I've mentioned that yet. That's the that's the best part about our DSO live promotional webcast is that the live is always free and always. That, that's amazing. As far as I'm okay. concerned, always will be free. But around that, there's these opportunities now to build an encore strategy. Do we want an archive player where people can go in and subscribe and have, you know, access going back years into what we've produced? Do we want to do that through various partners? So we've got some planning and strategizing we're doing internally. Um, to and in the near future, we'll be we'll be sort of launching some more opportunities for people to share and and experience the content. 
That, that could be quite interesting. I, I don't know if you've been following, you probably have been, the Berlin Philharmonic, mm -hmm. where they have the pay-per-view that is happening on their website. And that's something definitely I'm sure you're looking into as well as an option. Exactly. Right. So how are these audiences participating? You say some are really social on social media. Are, are, do you find other avenues that they're really participating with the live webcasts? Well, uh, some of them are donating, not as many as we would have hoped. Um, like I mentioned, the, the web guys have been terrific in sort of helping to secure major individual foundation and corporate support. We've hoped that, that, that there'd be a way to channel some of the worldwide audience into being a donor community as well. I still mm -hmm. think we're going to figure it out at some point. We haven't exactly... Um, we haven't solved that 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 recipe yet. We haven't. Well, I believe you. You do a an ask at the beginning. We do. Of, of the, we include okay. we include an ask. I'd say in the in the scheme of things, it's pretty soft. Um, and I think we have to think about how exactly to to situate that ask and how to perhaps situate some follow up, maybe via an email or something else. Um, I really think you should just put a tip jar. <laughs> Well, I'm serious. No. I'm not kidding. I would definitely, you know, if I'm enjoying it, I would tip a dollar or five dollars or ten dollars just just to see how it adds up. Definitely. I think that's a great idea. We've actually there's something we just started experimenting at the very end of last season, which we'll do more this season, where it's sort of like a tip jar, but um, it, a little hello bar, as we call it. When you've been watching mm -hmm. for seven minutes, a little bar comes down at the top and says, enjoying this web webcast, tap here to make a donation. So. We're going to see how that works, but I think some gamification or a sort of acute approach, like you suggest, could could be really successful too. So we've got, like I said, we've got some more exploration to do in that area, but I think that um, that that might ultimately be an avenue. I also think that what we want to do next year a little bit more is is use the webcast to promote our rich uh, recording, um, not just legacy, but current recording activity. We're, we still release mm -hmm. both on the Noxos album uh, label. And we release some albums in-house like a lot of other uh, orchestras. So as we're sort of building this base, people love the DSO. I'm hoping that someone would say, I love the DSO so much, I'd love to have some DSO albums, download them to my iPod, have them be able to listen to in the car. So we're hoping that there's some opportunities to engage and, and like you say, have the audience participate through some of those ways as well. And I think that I was just, I had the idea of having little kits for those clubs that you might be yes. trying to implement that that could be a lot of oh, fun yeah. that you get dso merch and <laughs> all sorts of yeah, party favors and then you get a tote bag and a hat and then if you get enough if you get a million points then leonard shows up at your doorstep and serenades you <laughs> oh that would be wonderful it, it, something to strive for yeah. <laughs> great so you have them participating socially they're a little bit slow to donate um are they giving you at least some good feedback if you like ask them to fill out a survey? Yeah, we've gotten good feedback from the surveys we've done. We actually, I, I want to do some more surveying. Um, I think a lot of our questions have been a lot of the standard demo stuff and some of the behavioral about how they engage in the product. There's more I want to learn about the audience, but, but every time we've reached out to them, we've gotten a robust responses. So, so yes, the audience has been good participants in that way. So in that sense, that's, that's definitely worth oh, yeah. All the effort, and then of course I would just say a number of them, a number of them become social followers on Facebook and Twitter, and so they keep the engagement and the relationship going, and that's of course great for us too to be able to stay in touch with them. Um, I should mention a number of them also give us their email address so that we can uh, include them on our uh, on our weekly uh, webcast reminders, which is another right. way of sort of 
participating in the community. Right, exactly. So in terms of the social media, I'm assuming that it has definitely increased your social media following. Is that correct? Oh, yes. <laughs> yes. Our, um, you know, and you give us a little. Yeah. yeah you know, we've focused. We focus more on quality of engagement than size of the audience. Though right. our, our Facebook audience, I think our combined Facebook and Twitter audience, I looked this up not long ago, I think since we started has grown seven times. So it's, it's seven tupled itself in the last three <laughs> years. Um, and, but, but what I'm even prouder of is, is the quality of engagement, the percentage of, of, of followers who are active, the percentage who, who comment, the percentage who click and convert and do different activities, um, it's, it's, it's a great quality audience. We haven't engaged in any sort of the, you know, the spam bot or phishing for sort of uh, audience members. We've been really thoughtful about how we attract and add people. We don't, we don't really engage in clickbait or, or like bait. We're really telling an important story, and we only want people who want to be uh, part of the DSO to be on our page. So, you know, we have, I think, now 35,000 Facebook followers and – I believe we're at about 16 or 17,000 Twitter followers, uh, mm -hmm. which are respectful numbers. They're certainly not the largest, but again, it's not for us the end measurement. The real measurement for us is what's the quality of that experience. And, and right. we see that our audiences engage and they interact whenever we interact with them. So we know that whenever we put a, a message on Facebook, we're talking to people who actually care and are going to see that message. Right, right. So it is about quality and it's about connecting with the right people. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like through these webcasts, you're definitely finding the right people to engage with on social media. And uh, you do use a hashtag. I don't think you mentioned that before. I haven't yet. No, the hashtag is key to our identity, DSO Live, hashtag right. DSO Live. And um, also our Twitter handle is at Detroit Symphony. But you know, for three years we've been investing, so to speak, in that hashtag, and it's um, uh, it's really picked up with that audience, and, it, and it's been incredibly popular. We've 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 also experimented with some other hashtags for fun little promotions. We did a hashtag DSO selfie promotion this spring, <laughs> and um, we had people submit their selfies, and then we had a winner. It was this high school couple that was so cute, and they came to the hall, and they were at the classical concert, and they all dressed up, and they were so happy, and and you know we've encouraged people to take their phones out at the concert hall and to document their experiences. Why wouldn't you want to? I mean, why would you not want to have that high school couple be able to take that picture and show all their friends the great time they're having at the symphony? Right, and maybe it'll show up on your next webcast. That'd be kind of neat. Exactly. Very cool. So we had talked about a little bit about the audiences and how they're increasing and the diversity, but I, I did want to go back to this a little bit. Um, especially concerning the changes in the live audiences. Mm -hmm. So you said these are the webcasts are supplementing the live audience. How has it affected the live audience? I don't I don't think it's affected in any way except positive. You know, it's a it's a tough question because it's I'm sure if, you know, if we comb through the hundreds of thousands of viewers who watch the webcast, there's got to be one or two out there who I'm sure said, you know what, I'm happy with the webcast, I'm going to stay home. But but the truth is, for me, it comes down to that, that base statistic, which is subscription audiences are growing, single-ticket audiences are growing, and when we ask subscribers, whether through surveys or anecdotally, they're, how they sort of perceive and view the webcast, their feelings are all positive, and their feelings are one of added value, 
of I was out of town, but I still could catch the concert or I love the concert so much on Saturday. I watched it again on Friday. I watched it again on Sunday or now during the summer when they show encores, they're keeping engaged and involved with the DSO in a time where otherwise you might not be connected to your subscribers at all. Oh, so, fabulous. Yeah. It's a top of mind, top yep. of mind yep. uh, guest. Wonderful. Yeah. So in terms of the live audiences, I believe doesn't the audience get on camera every once in a while too? And is there like a statement that you mentioned to them that you might be on camera? How, how are they dealing with this? Yeah, we put signs up in the hall that say today's a webcast production and, and going through, you know, first of all, to say if there's any distraction or concern, please let the ushers know and to also say it's being that the production is being taped. Um, uh, and, and I believe that the back of our tickets also, like a lot of other venues, say that you may appear in photography or videography for marketing purposes. Um, we've not had any we've not had any pushback at all. I, there's not one single instance I know of of anyone being upset that the concert was being taped or that we were um, or that the audience was uh, during applause shots being taped or shown. And I think it's because. Again, it's an experience we talk about and, and that we, we, we talk about both proudly and we talk about very openly. So people, you know, they know that it's part of the DSO experience now. They, they expect it. I imagine we'd have the pushback the other way um, <laughs> if we weren't taping. They'd say, what happened? Why are the where the webcasts go? So um, and especially now that we have these new robotic cameras. It's, it's really fun to hear from some subscribers who who when they first installed were like, oh, because they're little. They look like a little coffee maker. <laughs> trying to find them and saying, "Oh, I saw the I saw the robotic camera. It's um, uh, it's it. I saw it over box F." And then, of course, we had the really cute couple who said, "Um, because I mentioned to someone, oh, they kind of look like really mini R two D 2s And someone said, "I expected to see them on wheels, just sort of like roaming around the hall taking <laughs> video." And I said, "No, they're fixed, but they're they're definitely cute." So there hasn't been any negative feedback uh, to date. That's that's fabulous because I can see that. It's a definite different experience, but however, maybe, I don't know if you're promoting that this is a webcast, maybe people would get a kick out of going to that type of experience well, and we, be in the audience during the webcast and seeing all of that happening while they're enjoying the concert. So that could actually increase audiences just based on the curiosity factor of how you're doing this program. Oh yeah, and we do. We actually do do that now in our pocket guides and all our monthly mailers. Oh, you do. They note which one is the webcast. You know, the one thing I should add is, as I mentioned, we went to the robotic camera system. In the beginning with the cameras, there certainly were a few times where where um, there were some small issues because mm -hmm. you know you had a bulky camera, you had a cameraman there who was wearing a headset. There were a couple times in the beginning where there was a little spillover noise from the cameraman's headset, and we worked to fix those issues. Um, and I also have to say, our musicians were incredibly gracious because they had to live for. Uh, a couple of years with a cameraman on stage during their classical concerts. And, and, you know, we worked really hard to minimize the impact. And, but, you know, it's, it's, it's always a little bit, you know, it's there a little bit. And the musicians were just, they're incredible professionals, incredible, incredible musicians. And they were really gracious to share the stage because they believed in the power and the importance of the project too, uh, to share the stage with the cameraman and to make sure that we all could sort of live together and, and make the productions happen. So, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to be Pollyanna and say that we didn't sort of have to figure out how to sort of incorporate a new production flow and new equipment into our environment and into our venue. We certainly did, but I think through a lot of sort of uh, uh, a lot of sort of working together and, and open talk and being really clear about goals and needs, I think we were able to to, to weather 
any minor bumps and to avoid having any major ones. So I'm actually going to branch off because I just had a question pop into my mind. And especially you were talking about how this has been impacting the musicians themselves. Are you actually using the webcast to introduce the musicians to the audiences? We are. The musicians also are some of our favorite intermission guests. So we've talked to both veterans and newcomers. Um, sometimes when they have a featured solo as part of a, uh, an orchestral work, sometimes if they actually are a concerto solos for the weekend, and sometimes if they just have an interesting story to tell, something going on in their life or their musical career right now that, that we want to share with our audience. So we have done some of that, and we've we're talking about some some ways to keep doing some of that in the future. We're thinking about maybe creating some different vignette series, little like um, munchables or snackables that sort of give you a little little um, uh, insight into the, the musicians and some pre-taped pieces that we might run during between pieces or during intermissions. So, yeah, for us, I mean, our musicians are not only terrific artists, they're fascinating individuals with some really rich right. lives and who contribute to to not only Southeast Michigan, but to the national musical culture in such fascinating and important ways. And so when we can tell their story and share what they're doing, um, one, the audience loves it, and two, it makes us, again, really proud because we have really an all-star team uh, of musicians in the Detroit Symphony Orchestra. So we do do that as much as we can. I love that idea. And, in fact, that most of the orchestras that I have either been studying or come across, whenever they do those campaigns of letting the audience get to know their musicians, it seems to be one of their better seasons. So the audience is is pro-musicians, as we know, and the more that we let them experience a musician's life and and actually become a part of that experience, I I think it's just going to help with audience development all around. Definitely. So, um... Let's get back on topic. So changes in funding. Um, you mentioned that you have some foundations that that are that have kind of come out of the woodworks in, in a sense in order to fund this project. Are you seeing increased grants and are you seeing increased donations um, in terms of your whole audience? Well, the two major uh, supporters of the webcast from the beginning have been the Knight Foundation the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, which is based in Miami, but has its one of its target communities, Detroit, and also the Ford Motor Company Fund, um, which is, of course, the, the charitable arm of the Ford Motor Company. And both of them have just been terrific and incredibly generous supporters, not only of the operational costs, they both uh, supported the capital costs of installing the cameras. Um, they both have provided sort of marketing and promotional support and have just really been behind the project 110%. I mean, we could not be successful without either of those uh, organizations doing what they do. And I should add, in the case of the Knight Foundation, um, as part of a a multi-million dollar investment in the city of Detroit and its arts and cultural sector, um, about 18 months ago, the Knight Foundation made a uh, a $2.25 million endowment gift in support of digital media work in perpetuity. So we now have started a small part of our endowment, which which I hope will grow in the future, that 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 specifically and directly funds digital media work. So this is always a part of the DSO for the future. So that's that's just been incredibly generous and incredibly tremendous. Um, but in addition to Knight and Ford, we have other uh, foundation and corporate and individual sponsors at various levels that have 
made uh, gifts that are supported or inspired in support of or inspired by the webcast. You know, one thing about the way we run our webcasts are, like I mentioned, it's part of our part of our core activity. So our webcasts are in our annual budget. It's not a special mm-hmm. project budget to the side for us. Webcasts, okay. just like we have, you know, marketing costs, and just like we have HVAC costs, and just like we have costs of our personnel. You know, we have costs of doing our webcast. It's in our annual budget. So it's something. So it's, it's part of what you do. It's part of what we do. So right. we have people who give dedicated gifts, but we also have people who, who in, as part of supporting the annual fund are supporting the webcast and, and who are inspired by it. We've, we've received letters occasionally that say, we love seeing the webcast and, and it's one of the reasons we're getting behind you as a governing member or it's one of the reasons we're proud to make this corporate gift. Um, you know, so we, um, we see, uh, like I said, support that's both direct and support that's inspired. But I have no doubt um, uh, that the webcasts carry their weight in terms of generating contributed revenue that is uh, in excess of the of the expense we spend to produce the webcasts each year. Right. So I think this is a great example of a lot of positive energy that attracts more positive energy. Mm -hmm. And so I hope that if there's other orchestra uh, administrators out there listening to this podcast, that they will be inspired to do something equally exciting and energetic to attract that type of funding and support that they desire. So what do you think the future will bring? What types of tweaks maybe you need to do right now? What types of new programs? You mentioned the clubs might be something to look into. What types of participation opportunities that you could add do you see in the future? Well, I think for us, one of the next um, frontiers is going to be actually the educational sphere. We have a very robust and very successful educational program locally. And we're now starting to be in conversations of now that we've developed this expertise in media and technology, and since we have this existing great expertise in education, how do we merge those two? Where are the opportunities to to um, uh, create educational uh, and learning um, programs that are online or that are fueled by online or that have a live and online shared component? Um, so we're brainstorming some ideas that we're pretty excited about, and we think that in the near future we'll be able to come out with some of those, some tests and some pilots, and some that will actually uh, go the long haul. But for us, education is, is going to be a really important next area to explore. So the one thing that didn't get brought up, because we did have a conversation before about the webcast, that you said that you actually have a committee. Is it a committee on the board or an actual technology committee? Exactly. Well, we have an interesting governance structure at the DSO. We have both a board of directors who oversee the fiduciary responsibilities of the institution and hold us accountable to mission and function, much like the board of directors and and most nonprofits that folks would be familiar with. We have a second governance group called the Board of Trustees who allow us to bring in additional committed and, and volunteers and leaders in the community to be part of DSO governance, and they focus more on sort of strategic and innovative solutions to help move us forward in the future. And um, under the auspices of the Board of Trustees, we have a digital media advisory board. And that digital media advisory board is composed of um, some really fascinating people from throughout the Detroit area. These are folks who represent uh, Ford or GM or Chrysler in their digital media worlds. These are folks who uh, work for the local offices of Facebook or Twitter or Tumblr or YouTube or Google. Uh, These are folks who work for 
um, sort of cutting edge tech firms like Text from Last Night that folks might be familiar with, and they're folks who work in the marketing and publishing sphere. So we've assembled, it's about 15 to 17 people, really talented, really smart, really pushing us to be successful. And they provide guidance and oversight and real sort of creative capital to make sure that that we're not just sort of in a bubble thinking of ideas, but we're connecting with the outside world to understand where can our technology go and how can we be successful. So it's something we do in a lot of spheres at the DSO. We, we, we work really hard to engage the wider community and to, um, and to have people who have expertise and love of culture to share their thoughts and ideas with us. We're, we try very hard to, to, to have a, a, a sort of a culture and a community that gets outside our walls and, and welcomes Welcome just really talented people to, to, to work on our behalf. So did the digital media committee, was that started before the webcast started or did that come after? Well, we actually had a predecessor group called the Technology Task Force, and that was chaired by our current chairman of the board, Philip Fisher, before he was chairman of the board. Um, and the Technology Task Force formed in 2010 to look at what were the next steps in technology and media for the DSO? And um, that technology task force, among other things, sort of provided the base and the foundation and the spark, one, to adopt this mantra of the most successful orchestra on the planet, mm-hmm. and two, to chart out some of the projects that they saw the DSO engaging in, including webcasting, uh, including a whole new refreshed uh, web look, including social, including interactive technologies, and we've got this sort of list of 15 things over time that we hope that we'll, I think we will one day very soon all check off. But the webcasts were among that list. And then when the technology task force, which was, which was intended to have a time limited scope, when it sort of made its presentation and the webcast started and that sort of dissolved, we started this new group, the digital media, uh, advisory board to more specifically focus on sort of the creative, uh, and social aspects of, of digital engagement um, with a new sort of set of people. It was interesting. The tech task force had some out people from the outside, but it actually included a lot of people from inside the institution who had a lot of vision and passion, mm-hmm. but weren't necessarily experts in specific elements of technology or digital or social or marketing. And now we have all these people, this nimble group that, that actually, I mean, these are folks who are on the front lines every day. I mean, this might be the, the product manager, like I said, the product manager for, for Tumblr in the Detroit market. So when we have questions about Tumblr and how could we use Tumblr to promote our webcast or to promote something else we're doing, we, we can reach out to them. That's fabulous. So in a sense, it's if you build it, they will come. <laughs> and this was a great example that you had so much passion behind this that people are just being attracted to it and the right people. And it's it's a fabulous program. It really is. So do you have any last-minute advice for any artists or organizations that are looking to attempt a similar format? I think my advice to, to any other organization, performing arts or orchestra, that's that's looking to get involved in the digital sphere is to – is to is one to do it. I mean, there's there's a there's a range of ways that you can get involved. It doesn't have to be a webcasting series, and even if it's a webcasting series, it doesn't have to be on a certain scope or scale. I mean, there's a way for everyone to get involved and and to use digital and social tools to reach an audience. So it might be something as simple as allowing people to take photos in the lobby and encouraging them to post them and share them. It might be as simple as getting a handheld camera and taping. Uh, vignettes backstage and putting them up on your YouTube channel mm-hmm. so people get some exposure to 
to what it's like to be behind the scenes at your institution. And it might be something as big as investing in the personnel and the equipment to um, create a webcast series. But in our case, again, as, as, what I didn't say directly, but what, but what was implied in the story is we didn't start with the sort of system installed and all the people on board and all the crew and personnel. We started sort of rubber bands and duct tape. Right. And that first week, we, we, we said, hey, we want a webcast. So we called up Detroit Public Television and said, can you get cameras down here and people? And can we do a webcast? And they said, sure. And we said, oh, man, we need someone to score read. So our assistant conductor that week score read. And we needed someone to make the run of show on an Excel sheet. So I did the run of show so we knew all the elements that we had to make sure we were going to hit and tape. And so we kind of, you know, we figured it out in the beginning. And then each week we got a little bit better and we got a little more serious. Well, we were always serious, but we invested a little bit more. And we learned how to up the production value to, to very soon we got to a level where the product was ready to be sort of brought out in a much larger way. And we could go to funders and say, we've been doing this now. This is what we've accomplished. If you get behind us, we can do so much more, three, four, five, seven, ten times more. Will you get behind us so we can invest in this product and make it something even greater and even grander. So I just think there's a way for everybody to get involved, and I encourage everyone to, to find some way to get involved in the digital and social sphere. And I love the fact that you just said, just do it. Just try it out, experiment, take the risk, and and then build a vision so then other people can attach onto that, latch onto that vision and become a part of it. I, I just love it. So the energy behind this project is simply amazing, as as we have witnessed. So for more information, where can people visit you? Please visit dso.org slash live. That's the home for our webcast. Of course, you can check us out on Facebook slash Detroit Symphony, on Twitter at Detroit Symphony. We're on YouTube.com slash Detroit Symphony. I mentioned we're on Tumblr and Instagram as well. And also we've got a great mobile app where you can watch the webcast and do all sorts of other fun things. It's called dso to go And in the uh, App Store for Apple or in the Google Play Market, you can search for either Detroit Symphony or DSO to go. So any of those channels uh, will take you to us and eventually get you through to watching our live from our show webcast, which, again, make their home base at dso.org slash live. Great. I actually have a couple more questions, if you can indulge me. I think we've gone longer than any other podcast I've had here because it's just fascinating. So the two questions I have are, um, you mentioned the demographics and where people are coming from. And I'm just wondering, are there particular states in our country that are attending the webcast? That's a great question. I apologize. I don't have the answer. I do know Ontario, which is the province to our north of our friendly uh, uh, maple syrup-loving neighbors. Okay. Um, Ontarians uh, do turn out. I have in the past, and I looked at a little bit of Ohio, but I apologize. I don't know more specifically uh, what states folks are coming from. Okay. That might be something, if, if there's a way to capture that, that could be quite fascinating because I I truly believe that we're becoming such a global world, and, and it's good to know where people are coming from. The other question is we didn't even talk about younger audiences, and I just wanted to make it a point to ask you, are these webcasts bringing in a younger audience? Yeah, that's a great question, and I know with sort of the talk around the Met Opera simulcast, there's been, right. a lot, there's been a lot in the news lately about, you know, what's the age of the audience that's engaging with media for classical music? Well, you know, and that magic number was sort of set at 65, which I guess sometimes can feel young in classical music, but um, <laughs> 74% of our audience is under the age of 65, and 
50, about 54% of our audience is under the age of 55. I'm talking about on the webcast. Wow. So okay. uh, it's certainly, um, it's certainly a, a younger audience. Um, and in fact, you know, we just know again, anecdotally from watching and looking at the photos of the people on Twitter and Facebook that are, that are, that are engaging socially, we've got a wide range of, of ages enjoying and participating. And we have no shortage of young folks uh, being part of the webcast series. And in fact, in the hall too, we've made tremendous strides, uh, welcoming new audiences, whether it's something like our sound card program, which allows students full access to any DSO classical or pops concert all season long for one price of $25 wow. um, nice. or our mix it or something like our mix at the max series, which is our alt classical series. It happens in our cabaret theater, which is part of our venue. Um, it has sort of more eclectic alt classical acts. It happens post work. You bring your drink in, you sort of um, it has a different vibe. It's, it's sort of has a little bit of that, Le Poisson Rouge, the New York sort of alt-classical club that people are really familiar with. And, and we're not alone in doing that work, but whether it's digital or whether it's live, we, we are working hard to attract young audiences, and we're seeing a lot of enthusiasm from all age groups uh, for, to, to, to share and participate in the DSO. Well, that could be a totally another podcast conversation, <laughs> but I wanted to thank you so much, Scott, for being on the ADS podcast. I think it's been a fascinating conversation and um, I hope people learn from your your experience and will take that inspiration and do something wonderful with it. Great. Well, thank you, Shoshana. It was such a pleasure to talk to you and to your audience. And um, I hope that we've uh, we've told a, an exciting story. I think you have. Well, thanks again, Scott. Take care. Take care. Bye. Bye. So I hope you enjoyed the conversation with Scott Harrison of the Detroit Symphony Orchestra about their webcasts. I find it to be a fabulous program that has created such positive momentum for their entire organization. And as you have witnessed, it has given them increases in audiences and audience participation and engagement, as well as for support. So... I think we've learned something here that they took a big risk and it did cost them something up front, but they found out ways to decrease the cost and find those supporters that would help pay for this fabulous program. So if you have any questions or a suggestion for another podcast in the future, feel free to email us at ads at buildmyaudience.com. Again, this is Shoshana with Audience Development Specialists, and thank you for joining us.